the sound is on. I forgot to turn on a switch. Okay. All right. So this is where we are this morning, Romans 5, verse 12. Again, this is a reminder that salvation is by grace alone. If God gives you one simple thing to do for your salvation, you will not make it. <laughs> Romans 5, verse 12, Apostle Paul said, or says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And that's the word of the Lord. We could not go beyond that. <laughs> For our title, we only have one title, Sin and Death in Adam, Part 2. Sin and Death in Adam, Part 2. I'm going to encourage everybody who is listening to ride with me all the way to the end because there's a lot of gospel for me to share with you this morning. A lot of things that you have not had connected as saying the same things. So ride with me. And may the Lord give you the blessing of ears. We come back again to Apostle Paul's discussion of the matter of the gospel. And it does not look like we are going to make any progress beyond verse 12. And that means we have a part 3 of verse 12 again. Apostle Paul is tying together some theological loose ends that he may amplify the nature of the gospel transaction and why the gospel is all of grace. He can't present all the details of what is happening at the same time because of the many moving paths. And if you put your hands, your fingers, into anything that is moving paths, you risk getting your fingers squashed. And there are a lot of preachers and people who have had their fingers squashed by the gospel because they don't know how to handle the moving paths. The gospel, though a simple message can be more than drinking from a fire hose when it comes to dealing with all the details that have to be put together. So God has to help us to break it into pieces that we can digest, get us some gaba baby portions, as it were. <laughs> Apostle Paul says, or has said, the believer is one who has been justified, one who has been declared as righteous by God. And they have, they possess peace with God 
on account of the death of Christ and even in that state of being justified, they face trials and tribulations and they should face trials and tribulations with confidence and joy with the knowledge that the trials are purposeful and are measured by God to build and teach certain desirable qualities in them, like patience, character, and hope. And Christ Jesus is and was the cause of all that the believer possesses and has laid claim on God. Or even better, God has laid claim on all of the elect because of and through Christ. And this is what Christ has done. He has forever reconciled all the elect to God. Or God has reconciled himself to sinners through Christ Jesus. And apart from Christ, there is no such relationship with God. Apart from Jesus, there is no peace, no reconciliation between a sinner and God. So the believer is one who has been, by grace, granted the privileged access or approach to the being of highest rank and honor, and that is God, because naturally you have no right and you have no ability to approach the being of God, given his power and majesty and holiness. And that grace is mediated to us through another being, another person, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the most important person there is to know. There's no one who is important. But Jesus is not doing all these things because he received grace. Jesus does not have access to God because of grace. We have access to God because of grace. Jesus has access to God because he's the son of God. Because he is God. Because he has been appointed to be the mediator between God and man. Christ Jesus is God in the flesh, working the second creation, the spiritual creation, of which the first creation, as described in Genesis, was typological or was foreshadowing of the second creation. And that is why we cannot approach this matter of Adam and sin with a very pedestrian view to it. The origin of sin bothers people. But they do not know or understand how it factors into the God who calls himself holy, righteous, and good. 
It is because they lack and are missing the other pieces of the puzzle. The God who is holy and righteous is the same God who is sovereign over all the matters of his creation. And God did not create things just so that he would enjoy the smell of flowers and wet his feet with the dew of the grass in the morning. God did not create because he was bored. God has not lost control of any second of what happens in his creation because his creation was designed by him to do exactly what he purposed it to do and to be. In other words, all things exist in service to God's purpose in Christ. All things exist in service. That's a very important theological line. If you have somewhere to write, you should write it down. Because people don't have understanding of why things exist. All things exist in service to God's purpose in Christ. Let us hear Apostle Paul explain Ephesians 3. Let's go to Ephesians 3, verse 8 to 12. Ephesians 3, verse 8 to 12. Paul says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That is what gospel preaching is. is preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. To make all the elect see, to see, to cause them by the preaching of the gospel. Paul is not making them saved. He is declaring the mystery of God in Christ so that by God's grace and God's spirit, all the elect may see the mystery of God in Christ. Which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. The mystery is masterion. That's the Greek word masterion. And it means that which cannot be understood, that which cannot be known Right? Unless one has been initiated into it, it cannot be known unless one has been opened to it. So it's cultish language. And this mystery was from the beginning in God. As long as God has been God, He had this in His mind. And that, and that means none understood really what was going on with the creation. Not man, not the angels, both the holy and the fallen angels did not understand it. Even Apostle Peter said this in 1 Peter 1, 
verse 12, that the angels sought to understand what God was doing or was saying. Verse 12 says, to them, the prophets who testified of this salvation by the Spirit of Christ, the testimony was of Christ and the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would come. That's what the Old Testament prophets were testifying of. They were testifying of Christ and the glories that would come because of him. And it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So the matters of the gospel, even the angels desire to have understanding of. The creation had and has in it God's mystery of Christ. It is all encrypted with gospel nuggets. It is the story of Christ. Everything in God's creation is encrypted with Christ and the gospel message. That is the proper way to understand the creation. But going back to Ephesians 3, verse 10, Paul continues to tell us about the mystery and says, to the intent that now the manifold, the manifold, the Greek word translated for manifold is variegated. And it means of different colors. The manifold wisdom of God. The different colors of God's wisdom. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Through the church, the chosen people of God, God determined to reveal and even teach the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That is the horde of the fallen demonic forces. What was going on? Because for long, they too wondered why and what was going on. Why they got in trouble. <laughs> they wondered why they got in trouble and what was going on. And the revelation of this truth was given by God to the church. It was not given to the angels. The church of Christ is the revelation of God's purpose. That's where the revelation has been given. It belongs to the church of Christ. Because it is only in the church that the Holy Spirit is actively teaching God's people about eternal matters. So the preaching of the gospel is not just to call the elect or make them wise unto salvation. For them to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. But to educate 
the principalities and the powers. But for them, it is not an education for salvation. It is an education that seals their own condemnation. Because Christ did not die for angels. That's the book of Hebrews. He did not die to redeem the angels. So the angels do not get to benefit from the story of Christ as God has revealed it. The fallen angels, that is. So the principalities and the powers hear these messages because through the foolishness of preaching, God speaks to them and reveals his sovereign will and purpose. So you are not the only listeners to what is being preached. The devil has his own preachers, that's according to Paul. They are very much interested in preaching some message, some counterfeit message. And that is why Apostle Paul said this in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We war not against flesh and blood. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual horse of wickedness in the heavenly places. Why do these evil forces war against the church? Because Christ is not good news for them. Remember the demons in the story of the demoniac? They said, we know who you are. Have you come to destroy us before our time? So they're warring. Christ Jesus is only good news to the redeemed. Otherwise, it's bad news. So be wary and watchful of these people who claim to know and love Christ, but are always on a warring footing in the name of the gospel. Because the gospel is a message of peace. It is a message of reconciliation. It is a message of hope. It is a message of love. So be wary of these people who claim the gospel, who claim to love Jesus, but they are always on a warring footing. It's not that they are aware of what is happening in the spiritual realm. They're probably ignorant of it. They're just being used. That's why Paul said we are not ignorant of the wiles of the devil, the devices of the devil. Let's go back to Ephesians 3 again, 10 to 11. Paul says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's manifold wisdom was and is in and through Christ Jesus just as all of creation is and through Christ Jesus, just as all of salvation is in and by Christ Jesus. Everything of God 
is mediated, is revealed, is done through the Son. His eternal purpose, not purposes. God does not have purposes. He only has one singular purpose. Was accomplished in Christ, in his incarnation, which culminated in his death, resurrection, and being seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. Eternal purpose of God accomplished in redemption. And his being seated was predicated on him having made an end to the purification of sin. In other words, when the Logos became the God-man, he could not be seated back to his glory until and unless he had made an end to the purification of sin. So there's no way that anybody can say, Jesus died and resurrected, but he did not save anyone. He did not justify anyone. That is contrary to the gospel testimony. It's anti-gospel. Christ could not be seated if he had not finished the work of salvation. So Daniel 9.24 says of the Christ. It was going to be cut off to finish the transgression. The Messiah to be cut off to finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. That's why he came to do. That's what he came to do. To finish the purification of sin. And to bring in an everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. To fulfill all that which was spoken about him. And to anoint the most holy by his blood. Okay? He entered the holy of holies with his own blood. As the high priest. So the cross was where the eternal purpose of God in Christ was done, was finished, was fulfilled. The cross was God's boardroom to sign, to ratify with the ink of the blood of Christ all the eternal things that he had purposed, the things that he had agreed with the Son and even with the Holy Spirit as the triune God, the blessing of his chosen through their redemption and justification. Without the blood, there's no binding document. As far as salvation is concerned, it has to be signed. Any legal document that is not signed is not binding. 
it has to have the signature. And the signature that God provided was the blood of the Lamb. So the cross was God's work of the second creation. God's work of the final creation. The spiritual creation. And guess what? God's work when finished is always and is immediately followed by a Sabbath. Not because he was suffering from sunburn and dehydration, but because it was completely done. Whenever God is done with something, there has to be a Sabbath. Immediate Sabbath. Genesis 2, 1, 3. Listen carefully and follow my arguments. They are very, very important to understand the story of your salvation. Let's go to Genesis 2, verse 1 to 3, and hear of what happened in the first creation. Moses says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he went on vacation. No. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And so this was looking to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus who ushered in the eternal Sabbath. The eternal rest when he finished his second work of creation at his death. That's why he said it is finished is in reference to the first creation where the same Jesus finished the work of creation and he said it's finished and he rested and then he came back for the second creation and when he finished the second creation, the redemption of his people, the salvation of his people, his last words were, it is finished, and immediately the next day also was the Sabbath. Okay? If Jesus did not redeem and justify his people when he died, then it means you and I are still in our sins. We are wasting time. He still has work to do. If Jesus waits for you to believe, for him to finish his work, then he did not finish it when he was sent this way by the Father. Okay? So we need to understand the proper relationship of faith to the work of Christ. What does your God-given faith actually do in the matter of salvation? Your faith is given by God to see 
God's purpose in Christ. It is given for you to be hold of spiritual realities that the ordinary person cannot see or believe. That's what faith does. It is not given to cause God's purpose. It's given for you to see. Faith is like these glasses that I have. <laughs> they are there for me to see. They don't bring anything into reality. They cause me to see what is already there. Genesis is it 2 3? Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And that means proper gospel teaching and hearing is a declaration or the declaration of God's purpose and work as fully finished and Jesus resting from all his work which he had made the church. We are his workmanship created after Jesus Christ. The church is the work of Christ. Therefore, to put any human conditions for you and I or anybody, for them to meet, for them to do, that they may enter into God's purpose in Christ is Arminianism. It's free will gospel. It's man-centered gospel. It's anti-God's gospel. Even though it may call itself reformed, pay close attention to what is being said and what is not being said. Even though it may call itself sovereign grace, it doesn't matter the term. It's what they are saying that really matters. Anybody can call themselves reformed and sovereign grace they can call themselves a Calvinist. Listen carefully to what they're saying. Are they speaking to the glory of man or to the glory of God? Okay. Let's go back to Ephesians 3.12. I hope you brought some lunch today because I'm going slowly. And I have a lot of stuff to say. <laughs> but this is good food. Ephesians 3.12. In him or in whom? In Jesus. We have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So as I said, faith has its relation to eternal things. It is for the chosen who have been made partakers of the inheritance in Christ to have confidence and bold access to God for them to know that God is pleased with them 
because of the aroma of the sacrifice that is Christ Jesus, God is pleased with you. Even though you sinned last night, even though you're going to sin today, next week, God is pleased with you because of Christ. Christ is alone the basis of the imputation of sin and righteousness. Your sin was and is not imputed to Christ because of your faith. Let me repeat that. Your, few, your sin was not imputed to Jesus because of your faith. Unfortunately, that is how much of the gospel is presented to people. That if you believe in Jesus, then your sin will be accounted to Jesus and his righteousness to you. That's false teaching. God has already done it before you were born. All your sins were imputed to Christ before you showed up. Before you even knew about it and even cared about it, God did it anyway. That is grace. And the righteousness of Christ was imputed to your account in the same manner without consultation from you when you did not know and did not care because these are transactions done outside of yourself. Let me repeat that again. The matter of salvation is a transaction that is done outside of yourself. Okay? But I want to revisit a statement that I made earlier in my opening remarks so that we may piggyback on it to continue developing the gospel testimony. This is what I said earlier. Christ Jesus is God in the flesh working the second creation, the spiritual creation of which the first creation was typological or was foreshadowing. And that is why we cannot approach this matter of Adam and sin with a very pedestrian view to it. That is the thread of our message today. The second creation and the first creation. And with that we'll go back to our Romans text, verse 12. And that to say everything that I've said was just introduction. <laughs> Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam, in the unfolding of God's eternal purpose in Christ, stands as point A in the human experience of it. He is pegged 
A. In the human experience of it. He comes in standing for all, the whole creation, because when he was condemned, the whole creation was condemned in and with him. As a result, the whole creation groans and suffers, waiting for its redemption in the second Adam. Here, Paul's commentary of this. The union of the first Adam with the whole creation. Adam was just not united to men and women with two feet. He was united to the whole creation, to the cosmos, as the second Adam is also united to the whole creation, but in a spiritual sense. Here, Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 19 to 22. Romans 8, 19 to 22. Paul says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation not just Adam, for the creation was subjected to futility, and that is vanity, to a wasting away, to decay, subjected to corruption, not willingly. The creation did not decide to corrupt itself. Adam did not decide to corrupt himself. Men have not seen that in the Bibles. The creation, including Adam, was subjected to vanity by God. It was not his will, but he was caught in the unfolding of a much bigger story of which he was a participant. Adam was caught up in a much bigger story than himself. Because sin must be there in the unfolding of God's purpose. How did God subject Adam and the creation to vanity? Through sin. Through sin. And that means God is he who is and was 100% behind the whole matter of sin. Here, Romans again. Not willingly, but because of him. <laughs> who subjected it. Not willing, but because of him, because of God, who subjected the whole creation to vanity, but it does not stop there, in hope. That is, in Christ, 
and his work of salvation. The vanity of Adam and his creation was not the end of the story. It was looking to something bigger in hope. Sin, the vanity, the futility, were a necessary ingredient. Write these words down because I've carefully chosen them. They were necessary ingredients in God's recipe of accomplishing his eternal purpose. Sin was the necessary ingredient. For your cooking, your baking, your pancakes, your cakes to taste good, you need to have the necessary ingredients in the right proportions. Beloved, God does not have gluten-free recipes. I know it's all over the place now. You go to every store, every restaurant, they're selling something that is gluten-free. <laughs> God does not have gluten-free recipes. Everything must be mixed in the pot in its right proportion for the desired outcome. His eternal purpose to come as he willed and purposed for the riches of his grace and mercy, <laughs> for his glory to be praised. There must be sin in the recipe. Remember Paul in Ephesians 1, to the praise of the glory of his grace. How do you praise God for his grace if you're never a sinner? <laughs> God ordained it and he made it pass. It doesn't matter if he used or uses secondary means they are doing nothing that is contrary to his will, that is contrary to the script. There is a script, just like any movie. Yeah? His grace and mercy are made rich to those who are the redeemed sinners, those who are under sin, death and condemnation, and in this God's purpose in Christ is fully realized. Everything that we know about God as Christians is centered around Christ and the cross. Why? Sin. <laughs> so if we claim that sin happened by accident, because Adam had taken one too many, or that he could have prevented himself from sinning, then we do not know God's story, and we do not know the God of the Bible. 
Did you not hear in Ephesians 3 God saying, His eternal purpose was in Christ. And people say, Oh, I wish I knew what is God's purpose for my life. <laughs> As if you are able to do it. <laughs> it's for you to know Christ Jesus. That's your purpose. Christ Jesus was plan A, which means Adam's sin was plan A, which means all the sins that you've committed and you shall commit are plan A because your salvation was always God's plan A. Which means you have gained more in, in Christ than you would ever gain in the innocent or sinless Adam. You have gained more, far much more, as a sinner in Christ than you ever gain in Adam. Adam must sin. There was no option B or C or Z. And Christ came to fulfill and reverse the sin so as to bless to the praise of his name. That's what he came to do. To reverse the condemnation and to bless. To bring the inheritance. God does not share his glory with anyone. Ultimately, he does not. Yes, as those who are redeemed of Christ, we shall participate in his glory. But ultimately, it's his glory. Thus, Adam could never be the one to bring you into God's blessing by his own obedience. Adam could never be the one to bring you into God's eternal blessing because Adam had nothing to give. What did Adam have? When Adam showed up, everything was already there. <laughs> what would you give him? What would he give you? It was not his to give. Christ has something to give. He has eternal life. Romans 8.21 Oh man, this is where we are still. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. So that Futility, that vanity was corruption. But it will be delivered from that bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So that is saying the creation cannot be made perfect apart from Christ, apart from the glorious liberty of the children of God apart from the redemption and glorification of the bodies of those that Christ redeemed. 
For we know, that's verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The earthquakes, the thunder and lightning and all these things. The creation is pictured here like a woman who is pregnant. Reading in pain and ready to be delivered from the pain of childbirth. That is what is happening in the creation. That's what all that you see that you don't like in the creation, that's what that is saying. It is God preaching. God is the one preaching through the creation. Okay? Let's go back to Romans 5, 12 again. I'm going to read it. <laughs> Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. So through the one man, Adam, sin entered the world. The literal rendering is, the sin entered the world. And that is spoken of in the past tense. The sin entered the world in reference to the particular sin of Adam. There was an event that happened that introduced the sin into the place called the world. Because before then, it did not have sin. And with the entrance of sin also came death. Death came by sin. And death is literally also rendered as the death. Death came not because of poor nutrition, but because of sin. Sin and death come together. And they stay together. As long as you remain in the first Adam, they remain together. They are only severed by one who has life in himself, and that is Christ. Christ is the one who separates death and life. He came and said, the one who has believed has passed from death to life. Christ in the middle on Mount Calvary, he is the mediator of life and death, life to the one and death to the other thief. What is that saying? Saying many things. He's saying all men and women and children have a common ancestor is proven by the fact that we all succumb finally to death. It is saying that Adam was the natural head of all of humanity in that all were constituted and seen by God in him. Such that in the matter of the commandment that God gave, his breaking of it was accounted to all men without exception. In this matter and in this manner, 
God was introducing a very important legal principle that is his way of doing things. The gospel presents to us God's way of doing things. If we are not preaching and believing God's way of doing things, we are not telling the truth of God. doesn't matter how sincerely we do it. And the principle here on display is imputation. And it is central to God's dealings with men. And if any should find peace, even today, and experience peace. It is when, by God's grace, they have laid hold of this principle that the righteousness that God accepts is that which is only imputed by Him. It matters to understand because your eternal standing is 100% based on this principle and no other. It is a God transaction. Therefore, it cannot be affected by anything that anyone does or does not do. And it offends many who think they are doing righteous things to try and add to this transaction. You cannot will or change it. You can't cause the righteousness of God to be imputed to you by an act of your own will or an act of your obedience. Not by your running, not by your effort. It cannot be done. It is fixed in heaven and it is a done deal. Okay? What is happening here and now is God teaching you of what already happened. God came and said, In the day that you shall eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. I've said it in the previous message and other messages. That there was no if and then clause. If you do this, then I'll do this. If you eat, you will die. Okay? And God did not say, if you don't eat and you fix your bed every morning, you shall leave and you get more cookies. <laughs> God did not say that. It was not a conditional statement. God essentially was saying in the decree, all who are in you shall be found just as guilty as you are, as if they did the very same act of disobedience. God made a statement of what was going to happen to Adam according to the script that had been written, ordained of him with a view to Christ Jesus. God is in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, 
But God is already in his mind preaching John chapter (laughs) 1. Yeah. He sees all things. The script is his. So this is the beginning of the unfolding of his story. The movies, before they go into production of the movie, the writers have to write the story of the movie even a whole year or two years, or they may best the story of the movie on some book that was written some 50, 100 years ago. The book is the blueprint. But in time, they get the actors and actresses, okay, to dramatize the blueprint. That's what is happening. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. We're going to dwell in Genesis 2, 15 to 7, from 15 to the end of Genesis 2. And then we're going to end our message in Genesis chapter 3. It's a long message. But I have to say what God gave me to say. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is a commandment that was given to Adam before Eve was formed from his side. Adam had the freedom to eat of everything except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God said in the day that he would eat from it, he would surely die. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the shadow of the law because it is on account of it that sin and death came into the world that is the curse. And by the law was the Lord Jesus Christ accursed. The scriptures say, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, but that is no ordinary tree. That was just not some ordinary mango or apple tree. The Lord Jesus was cursed by the law because of the sin that came from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A lot of people minimize this understanding that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to reverse the first Adam. Principally, that is why he is here. So the commandment to Adam that he would surely die had a layered meaning. It was proleptic, anticipative, prophetic of the death of the second Adam. Just as Nathan the prophet said to David on account of his sin with Bathsheba, David 
the son born to you shall surely die. Same expression, word for word. Both statements were in reference to Christ. Yes, the first Adam died, but the curse here was directed to Christ. Yes, the son of David and Bathsheba died after eight days, but the son of David and Bathsheba is and was Christ Jesus. It is he who had to die. And that is why Christ Jesus is said to be the Lamb of God, right? Slain from before the foundation of the world. Slain. Okay? Determined to die by God. Right from before the foundation of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ knew that he was going to come and die. That is why you see more death in the Old Testament than you find in the New because all that was prophesying of the death of Christ. Next, God pronounced that it was not good that the man should be alone. This man, Adam, should not be alone. God did not find him another suitable dude to play soccer or football with. He could have done that. That does not answer to the problem that God saw. A man with another man is contrary to God's eternal purpose in Christ. It is anti-Christ. It is anti-gospel. Marching with flags won't change the spiritual reality and truth of it. It doesn't matter what becomes of America. To approve it doesn't matter. God's truth remains. The Bible says God made a helpmate in the manner of a woman. The woman not being physically stronger, but she came with better factory settings. <laughs> Aesthetics, fair, lovely, beautiful, as a gospel testimony of the church. You see, that women don't really need to put much effort to look good, just a t shirt. <laughs> we just a t shirt. Why? God is preaching that in the fullness of time, this would happen. This is what the helpmate that God created was preaching. It was looking to something bigger than Eve. Colossians 1, 19 to 22. Colossians 1, 19 to 22. Paul says, For it pleased the Father that in him that is in Christ, or the fullness should dwell. The fullness of the Godhead. 
and by him to reconcile all things to himself. Not by Adam, not by your obedience, but by him. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That means by his death. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Verse 21 and 22. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now, as things stand, he has reconciled. He has reconciled. In the body of his flesh, through death, that's the only way to reconcile yourself to God. As God said, in the day that you shall eat or eat, you shall surely die. To die with the intention of what? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. God wants, knows how he wants you to look like. Okay, so he provided everything that he wants you to be. In other words, to present you a beautiful bride as the proper helmet, helpmet, as the proper companion that corresponds to Christ because the church is not married to God the Father. The church is married to the Son. Above reproach, blameless, without spot or blemish because we have been perfected in and by him glorified and have been formed after his image of holiness and Righteousness. So God formed the companion from the side of Adam by way of putting him to sleep. That is by way of a picture of death and the shedding of blood. There's no bloodless surgery. There's no bloodless birth. Not of human beings. Human beings don't lay eggs like chicken. <laughs> the bride-to-be would be formed from the side of Adam and by the work of God, by the hands of God. And in fulfillment, the bride of Christ would be formed from the piercing of the side of the second Adam on the cross. Him who came by water and blood for the washing and purification of the same bride. Adam purchased his bride, Eve, by way of death. As Christ purchased his bride, the church, by his death on the cross. After God had formed a bride for Adam, 
he caused the resurrection of Adam and introduced Eve to him. And Adam was immediately smitten. Butterflies. He loved her. As I said, he did not even wait to test the cooking skills of Eve. (laughs) And Adam wrote his first love letter to Eve on sight. This is what he said. This one. (laughs) Who was he talking to? He didn't have friends or neighbors. (laughs) This one at last is born of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken out of man. That was a love letter. Born of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Okay, Katie, you have to have Sean write you a letter. Let's say that. (laughs) The church was to be formed out of a man. That is why the incarnation of the Lord Jesus was necessary. Him taking up human flesh. It was necessary for the formation, the founding of the church. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And this was the earliest pronouncement of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, in respect of his bride who was on earth, The man shall leave his father and mother. Jesus did not have a mother as God, as the Logos, but had a mother in Mary, in the incarnation, and was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But verse 24 of Genesis 2 tells us the purpose of Christ. He is the man who was to leave his father in heaven, in the incarnation, in pursuit of his bride, the church. That's what that is saying. That is what that is saying. It's Christ who has to leave the father in pursuit of his bride, that they may be united in his death and become one flesh. They cannot be one flesh until the incarnation and until the death of the husbandman. Jesus had the bride by election. But she must be spiritually formed by his death. She must be cleaned up first. Because she has been playing with sin. She can't just come to the husband the way that she is. She needs to be cleansed. She has been playing with debt. Her bride has been playing the harlot. And we see the picture of the church in weddings and how The women lose their minds almost 
and they sleep for their wedding day. This is some serious business. They do everything. They throw everything to be the best. To be the most beautiful they will ever be for the presentation. They are making a presentation of themselves to their men. When the two shall be joined together to become one flesh. See that much of the work to beautify the bride is done to her by other people. She has a team of people, beauticians. So the cleansing of the church to make her beautiful and acceptable to Christ is done to her by Christ himself. Remember the book of Esther. We have a message. The quarters, what's the name of the message? Son? Yes. The cleansing of the church has to be done by God. It has to be done by Christ. That is the mystery of the church and Christ. That is what all these things preach. They are not inventions of men. Let's keep moving in the development and progression of the story. Genesis 3, 1 to 7. So we're going to end there. Not just now. There's a lot of stuff to unpack. Hear what God said through Moses. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, As God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. In Genesis 2, we have been given kind of a blueprint of what will happen when Christ appears. God's purpose has been made known as we are preaching it. But now to the revelation of the mystery, how the mystery was to unfold. A tempter was introduced into the story. Very cunning, very crafty, very deceitful. But see that it was God's creation too. The tempter was God's creation. And we know that the devil is he who was behind this hissing theology to deceive Eve. God created the devil as an instrument to do his bidding. To be the catalyst for the bringing of sin. There was no surprise to God with respect to the devil. And no surprise to God with respect to Adam and Eve. Who made the devil to be cunning? Did he take a few classes on it? No, it is 
God. No one gives themselves any ability whatsoever. Is God given? Okay? So the devil came and was a revisionist. He was attempting to reevaluate and restate what God had said and put his spin to it and suggesting that or if you did not quite hear what God said. And how did the devil know about that line of all the things that God said to Adam? It seems that he knew about this line. How did he know about that line? See that it is the devil who initiated the conversation, not Eve herself. He came and said, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The devil did not even come and ask anything about the weather and say, Oh, it's beautiful today. No. His concern was that commandment. He knew that there was a conversation about this tree between God and Adam. And I'm going to say, The devil, since he is not omniscient, had it from God. The devil still had access to God as we can draw from the book of Job. It is God who introduced the story and person of Job to the devil. And I'm sure it is he who introduced Adam and Eve to him also. And in both cases, to bring about death and destruction. I'm sure God would have said, have you seen my servant Adam and his wife? How beautiful they are. (laughs) And the devil probably would have said, oh, let me go there and let's see how righteous they are. Let me go test it. I give them a commandment. Let me go see what they say. The devil was created for a purpose, as the agent of corruption, to be God's hand in the matter of sin. Anyone who does not know that does not get the story and the scriptures right. If you clean up God, you end up in mystery mysticism and unbelief very, very quickly. If you clean up God, try to protect God, you find yourself with no explanations as to why things happen. Verse 2 of Genesis 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. The fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, shall not be eaten. Eve had her additional commentary and said, nor shall you touch it. And that may have been from what she had from her husband. But she knows that if one ate it, 
they would die. Verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See that the devil did not say. See, I am going to eat it and show you that it does not kill. It was not his to eat. As he was already under the condemnation of his own issues. But he says, girl, (laughs) in this tree is hidden all the wonderful things of wisdom. You can actually get a software and spiritual upgrade and become just like God. Knowing good and evil, you're going to be so smart you won't even believe it. And that was some really appetizing presentation to be just like God. Can you imagine for a second to just be like God knowing everything? The devil had aspired to be the same and found himself in great irredeemable trouble. And misery loves company. He is on a recruitment exercise of more miserable people. And that is the same teaching of putting the redeemed under the law, saying, oh, the law does not kill anymore. We are just doing it because we love God. No. The law is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And many are deluded that it will make them pleasing or acceptable to God. And it is not new teaching. God said, if you miss one point of the law, you are guilty. You are condemned. You are guilty of the whole thing. Even if you miss it for one second, you are condemned. If you eat or break even one commandment, you are guilty. The devil is the preacher of the righteousness of works. The devil does not preach the cross. He encourages you to go touch the law with your naked hands. He will encourage you to keep saying, claiming that the law is the rule of life for the redeemed. Because according to him, the more who are condemned, the merrier. That's why Paul did not play games when he came to the matter of the gospel and the law. It's like, oh, you Galatians, are you so foolish? Who has bewitched you? You have to be bewitched to believe that the law is the rule of life if you really understand what the law is saying. Verse 6 of Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took off its fruit and ate. 
What is that saying? First John 2.16. First John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the last of the flesh, the last of the eyes, and the pride of, his, of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Do you see that? The last of the flesh, the last of the eyes, they mirror what happened to Eve. And that means Eve was not a righteous person in herself. She, like Adam, was made good, but not incorruptible. And the commandment and the devil were given to prove the fact. And the commandment was given to prove the corruption that lied within. If you look at the law, what do you see? It's good. It's righteousness but it arouses your sin. Let's go to Romans 7 for some commentary. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because it's working death. Even the commandment that was given Adam, was that sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have, I wouldn't have known sin. I would not have known sin except through the law. Adam and Eve would not have known sin except through the commandment not to eat. That's what is going on. And that means God wanted them to know about sin. That is why the commandment was given. And that is why the devil showed up as a law preacher professing his goodness, knowing very well that it will get them killed. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. For even Adam and even Paul would not have known sin, not known covetousness, unless the law said, do not eat. Unless the commandment came and said, from this tree, you shall not eat. Thou shall not covet. What did Eve see when the commandment was given? When the devil came and spoke to her, what did she see? Verse 6. Uh, this is verse 6 of Genesis 3, but we're still in Romans. I'm going to read it to you. If you can get to it, that's fine. What did Eve see? 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took off its fruit and ate. That was covetousness. That was covetousness. That is the sin that took down our first parents and us. Covetousness. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment, that's Romans 7 verse 8. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. Sin taking opportunity by the commandment not to eat produced in Eve all manner of evil desire. That is great teaching. She became even more curious. The commandment was there to expose that which was lying dormant that Eve and Adam were not aware of. To show Eve and Adam that they were not righteous in themselves. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Apart from the commandment, Adam and Eve were innocent. At least in the sense that they had not committed any sinful act to go against God's command. So in that respect, sin was dead to them. But it was made alive when the commandment came. That is the relationship of law and sin. And we have been hammering this matter for the past 10 years. Almost every other message. Both is not understood. She also gave her husband with her and he ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. She was like, honey, here I made some fruitcake and salad for you. <laughs> Yummy. You'll love it. Do you want some honey dip with it too? Verse 7, Genesis 3, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sawed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Three things happened in sequence in the immediate aftermath of the eating. Number one, the eyes of both of them were opened. Number two, they were, they knew they were naked. They immediately realized that they were naked. Number three, they immediately opened their first fig leaf free will Baptist church. They made themselves coverings. They opened their first church of free will. The eyes of both were opened to what? To see the truth of what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stood for. To the reality of who they truly were. Sinners. 
they understood the purpose of the law, the commandment that was given, to open their eyes to the reality of their nakedness, their lack of righteousness, because there's none who is righteous who does not have the righteousness of Christ. Before, they did not realize they were naked as many people, even in our day, because sin had not yet been revealed to them by the commandment. And that to say, the law, the commandment, is not for covering a sinner. It is not for sanctification. But sanctification will be covering a sinner too. Because they are cleaning them. You are cleaning them. It is to expose their nakedness. As Paul said in Romans 3.20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. And this is what they did not have until the commandment was given. But this was not just some head knowledge of the matter without consequence. God is a practical preacher. It came with sin and death and condemnation. Those who claim to be doing the law have not had their eyes opened to the truth of what the law is actually saying. They've not understood what the law is saying. Because when that happens, initially, this is what men and women do. They double down. They become even more religious. They begin to saw for themselves fig leaves to make covering for, coverings for themselves. In other words, establishing their own righteousness. And I'm always hearing the sound of the sewing machines in the fig leaf garment factory. <laughs> and that is the majority of churches. You join them and they give you a sewing machine to stitch together your own righteousness. In other words, they get you busy in trying to be righteous. They get you very religious. They get you a lot of religious things to do and to be. They get you on the treadmill of works righteousness. They will give you a welcome card and your certificate when you join the fig leaf. <laughs> Baptist Church and join the like-minded believers. Misery loves company. Be careful of how you're hearing. But I also wanted to make some theological commentary of what happened when Eve and Adam ate from the tree. As I believe the Lord has given me understanding. I'm going to say, if someone was praying for me today, your prayer has been answered. I have enough strength to talk for the next three hours. Okay? I'm not even kidding. So let's keep going. Romans 7, 9 to 11. I want to make some more connections. Romans 7, 9 to 11. Apostle Paul made or shared the discoveries 
that God made to him about sin and law. He said, I was alive once without the law. Adam and Eve would agree wholeheartedly with Paul. They thought they were alive. They thought they were fine. But when the commandment came to not eat for Adam and Eve and Mount Sinai for Paul, sin revived and I die, said Paul. And I died. Adam, Eve, and Paul on the same page. Sin was revived and they died. As God said, in the day that you shall eat, in the day that you shall break the commandment, you shall surely die. Verse 10. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring the very opposite. I found to bring death. In the case of Adam and Eve, the devil said, the commandment would bring wisdom. It would upgrade you to the level of God. To be like God, knowing good and evil. That's bringing life to Adam and Eve. It's even, it's even better than the life of the garden. But Paul, when he understood the commandment, the commandment came and said, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do all the things that are written in the law. And this is never quoted by a lot of the law preachers. The law demands that you continue, not in the Ten Commandments alone, but in everything that is written under the contract that is called the law. Okay? That's the proper understanding. And both commandments brought death. Mount Sinai brought death. This commandment given to Adam and Eve brought death. For sin, verse 11, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. Eve was deceived. Adam was deceived. Paul was deceived. And the law keepers are deceived. It can't be that only Adam was deceived. It can't be that only Paul was deceived. Even the law keepers of our time are also deceived. Because God has not changed his testimony. And by it killed me. <laughs> Sin always takes occasion by the commandment to kill. The moment that I give you a commandment to do, Oh, I'm going to kill you. You're going to get killed. Okay? So sin uses that which is good to kill. It uses that which is good to kill. Sin is what deceives, not the commandment. Sin deceives by saying that you have ability to do the commandment. Sin deceives people to think they can do the law. Those who claim to be doing 
the law have been deceived by sin. There's no way to spin it. If your great, 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 great grandmother is Eve, you cannot do the law. <laughs> you cannot do the law. Now, to the conclusion of this message, let us work some more gospel details from Genesis 3. Very wonderful stuff. Paul said this about what happened in 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 14. 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 14. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. That's 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 14. And this is the reason that was given, verse 18. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was formed first. Just that. The ordering of creation also speaks to God's communication of authority and submission structure in the church. This is not saying women are inferior to men. That's not what God is teaching at all. He is just speaking to the matter of ordering of authority in his body. Verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Paul says, Adam was not deceived. It is the woman who fell into transgression, fell into sin. How is that so? They both ate. You cannot answer that if you don't use a gospel hermeneutic to unravel it. You cannot, because they both broke the commandment. The devil did not approach Adam with his tricks. He approached the wife. Why? Because I'm thinking Adam would have probably said no. But even if he did, there's more to the story. It is Eve who ate first, not Adam. This is very purposeful on the part of God. Eve must eat first. Eve must sin first. The ordering of who is first is important. Because Eve represents the church and it is the church that must eat first. It must sin first and be guilty first before Christ. In Romans 5, Paul tells us that Adam was a type of him who was to come. And that means Christ. Thus, he could not be the one 
to be made guilty first. If Adam eats first, then it implies Christ is made guilty first. Christ becomes the sinner. Christ becomes the sinner. Even before the incarnation, even before the church has sinned, Christ is made a sinner. And we have a huge problem if that is the case. Because now, the sin of Christ has to be imputed to the church. <laughs> Not the other way around. Sin must be imputed to Christ. So the church has to sin first. So Eve has to eat first. Christ Jesus cannot be guilty of our sins until after we have sinned and until he has appeared in person. Yes, he was the surety from eternity. But he was not guilty of our sins from eternity. In other words, our sins could not be imputed to Christ before the sin had appeared and before Christ had taken the body that dies. But sin is imputed to the sacrifice. Sin is imputed to the sacrifice. So Christ has to leave the Father. Okay? He has to leave the Father and come to be with his bride. Let's keep going. We are almost done. See that the Bible, as I said, says Eve sinned before Adam. And yet, it says sin and death came through Adam. Why not say sin and death came through Eve? Or sin came by Adam and Eve. God accounted the sin and the condemnation of it not to Eve but to Adam. And so, in the appearance of Christ, God does not account the sins of the church to them, but to their husband. Yes, it's Eve who ate, but it's sin and condemnation, or it's Adam. Christ shows up, it's the church that sinned, but guess what? Is Christ who is made guilty of it. So Eve eats first and comes under sin and death before Adam did. But they did not eat at exactly the same time. So the ordering was not accidental. I believe God told the tempter, the devil, to go for the woman first for reasons best known to God, that he may remain consistent 
with the story of Christ. The devil was under God's instruction and was just not loitering. There's no way. We're just two people on planet Earth that God would have all this happen and not be aware of it. There's no way. <laughs> There's no way. He could not have been that busy. And so Adam, knowing the commandment, why did he not say to the woman, I'm sorry, girl. I love you. I'm still going to get you that Lexus for your birthday. <laughs> and for Valentine's. But I am not eating from this tree because of God's commandment. Adam took and ate seemingly without any hesitation. No second thoughts. Why? Because if Adam does not eat, his woman is condemned alone. Remember, the two shall become one flesh, but now they are separated by the sin that has come because of Eve. And they are now separated. So what does he do? He joins himself to his sin and condemnation by eating from the same tree. The two shall become one. That is union. That is union in life and in death. Adam and Eve must remain united. Yeah? But Christ comes and joins not exactly the way of Adam, but by way of imputation. Christ does not join himself to his bride by way of sinning. He does not sin. Our sins are imputed to him. That's how we get joined to him. The sins of his bride imputed to him. And when that happened, as happened with the first Adam, Christ himself is joined to the condemnation of his bride. As Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who you know sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ Jesus was the innocent and righteous husband who knew no sin, but he became sin for us. By having our sins imputed to him and being made liable for them as Adam was made liable for the sin of Eve. And in this transaction, there has to be union for there to be representation. You understand me? There has to be union for there to be representation. I cannot represent you if I'm not legally united to you in some way. And in this transaction, okay, I was just going to repeat the same thing, but as Eve was united to Adam, Christ Jesus was united to his church. 
that is the only way he could legally be made liable for her sins. That is what election does. Election from eternity lays down the legal grounds for our union with Christ. Understand me? As imputation of all sin happened to one person, Christ Jesus, and he made it good in one time, so the imputation of righteousness is made one time to the whole church as the bride. Because when God looks at the church, he's not looking at it as having 20 million or 5 billion people who are separate from each other. He looks at them collectively as the body of Christ. He does not say the churches of Christ is the one church of Christ. That's union, okay? So the church was perfected already by the one-time offering of the body of Christ. And God has imputed that righteousness of Christ to the church because the two shall become one flesh. The man, Christ Jesus, left his father for his bride. Yeah? Born of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And so the church was made the righteousness of God in him, in his death. Amen. And that is free. And we are finally done. <laughs> we are finally done. God be blessed for opening all these wonderful things. You have to wrestle with these scriptures. Don't spend your energy with people who are just trying to fight other people. Learn the useful things about Christ. Next week, the Lord willing, I think we are in verse 12 of Romans 5 again. <laughs> because we did not finish Genesis chapter 3. So we have to work that again to the end. Then you see that I'm not making things up. The stories continue to unfold the same mystery of Christ. Okay? Let's go before the Lord and ask and thank him for what he has given us to hear today. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace and opening the scriptures for us to glean of the wonderful things of Christ, the story of Christ that you presented to us in the story of Adam and Eve, and they only as shadows, but the reality being in Christ Jesus and the church. We thank you for all these whom we have gathered to listen to this message. May you grant them remembrance of the many things that we shared and to continue to grow them in the knowledge of Christ. Lord, we thank you for giving me strength to speak today and giving me all this understanding. May your name be praised forever and always. And it is in Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, God's people, you have a wonderful day.